and welcome. I'm Maura Gamble and you're tuning in to the Sense Making in a Changing World show. We've all heard about the housing crisis. What's going on? The system's broken. So where do we look for different ways forward and what theory of change? Come and join me in this conversation with economist Carl Fitzgerald from Grounded, the new community land trust advocacy organisation. Carl advocates that a saner future awaits when we focus on a community land housing solution that moves us away from the speculative drive and sprawl. He's dedicated to creating and sharing new models and developing housing futures that are intertwined with the permaculture movement. Listen throughout too for how Carl cleverly describes his model of community land trust through the language of permaculture principles and describes a community-led affordable housing option. So many possibilities are presented and Grounded is continuing to research ways forward to come together and grow together. Also, if you're listening to this show as it's going out live, check out the show notes because Grounded is hosting a conversation on the 1st of March. So this show is hosted by the Permaculture Education Institute and I'm calling in from the unceded lands of the Gubby Gubby here at Crystal Waters Permaculture Village in Southeast Queensland. Make sure you subscribe so you get notifications of these regular podcast episodes and leave us a lovely review because it really does help the algorithms to find and share our little podcast. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Welcome everyone to the show. Uh, it's Sense Making the Changing World show. And I have a special guest here today, Carl Fitzgerald, who is the founder and director of a community land trust advocacy group called Grounded. And uh, we met, gosh, a few years ago now on the banks of the Birrarung, the Yarra in Nam, Melbourne. Um, you were in a stall opposite David Holmgren's stall um in your with your hat of uh prosper on so just as a little bit of background carl is an economist and he talks a lot about what's going on in our in the world of housing now it's fair to say that we're in the midst of a housing crisis right now but this is something that you've been working on for a very long time i wonder if you could just give us a little bit of a background of like why and what is it that's going on in the housing system that has led you to focus so intensely on it? And how does Grounded then start to address what you see? Yeah, thanks, Morag. Um, speaking to you here from Jajawarang uh, uh, lands uh, in central Victoria, um, where, yeah, this housing market is running again ahead of the reality of our wages and for about 20 years now I've been uh, studying uh, this pressure point that uh, people seem to think is just too hard to fix and uh, you know there's only a handful of uh, us uh, economists who are seriously looking at um, the most effective and fastest way to turn this around and uh, that's what I did at Prosper Australia for about 18 years, uh, specialising in, uh, firstly, vacant land and housing and how during a housing supply crisis, vacancy was conveniently ignored. So uh, it was kind of bizarre that, uh, the, you know, there must have been thousands of uh, press releases uh, about uh, housing supply and the need to sprawl further and further 
around Melbourne, around every capital city, because supply just doesn't matter. Uh, just, you know, is, is not keeping up with the population growth. And, uh, yeah, for years we used water consumption as a proxy for vacancy and recognised, you know, that uh, the declared vacancy rate was about one-third of what we would find when we added up all of the vacant houses and, importantly, the vacant blocks of land. But they, those um, land sites had to have water meters turned on for them to come up uh, using zero litres of water over 12 months or less than 50 litres of water was our um, high-end marker. But uh, when most households use uh, 176 uh, litres uh, per person per day, um, we thought that was uh, an indicator that 50 litres of the, the leaking taps and pipes that occur in an ageing city. So uh, what we figured out, though, was that it didn't include what's happening in those so-called master-planned communities that are on the edge of every city, big, powerful developers, um, get the rezoning and uh continue um, this sort of cookie-cutter housing type that so many permaculture people pull their hair out over on, on so many levels. Um, but during this uh, time, um, you know, around about 2010, we were getting very excited about the potential of using property data and geospatial analysis to observe and interact with the way the economic functions were playing out in our own very communities. But uh, unfortunately, um, in what seemed like a bit of a, I don't know, might sound a bit conspiratorial here, a bit of an edict out of uh, Davos, uh, many of the um, land data um, offices around the world were privatised and the cost of accessing that data went through the roof. So I spent about uh, seven or eight years telling the story of this dream report I wanted to do and finally um, convinced uh, Cameron Murray, um, an, a Queensland economist, many of you will know, does fantastic work. Well, we teamed up and uh, wrote the staged releases report um, he did the academic version and I sort of did the um, the, the public uh, remotely readable version and uh, we found that um, developers actually manufacture scarcity mm. through the way they deliver all of these housing opportunities to the market so that in mid 2017 early early to mid 2017 clearance rates were starting to um, uh, drop and so uh, the algorithms came through for all of the the six major developers in nine master plan communities with 110,000 lots and they pulled 47% of the supply from the market so that prices uh, had a floor placed under them and um, 2017 became uh at the time, um, Australia's most profitable year for um, the increase in, in land prices. So can I just interrupt here because I'd like to go back a bit. When you're talking about vacancy there, um, you said it, it was at one-third of what was declared. So what was being declared? What are those kind of vacancy statistics in the first place? What are we? What are you noticing? 
Well, sorry if I said it wrong, but it was three times what was declared. Oh, yeah. Um, so, th- you know, three times higher. Basically, what we read about in the papers, and when we first started this, um, luckily, one of our researchers, Philip Seuss, actually went into the Real Estate Institute of Victoria and banged on the door and said, I'm not leaving here until someone gives me an answer. Where does this theory you keep spouting on the front page of the press that uh, uh, an effective vacancy rate is 3%? There's never been an academic paper on it, nothing. And they admitted to him it was it was made up. And uh, we looked further and, of course, the REIV vacancy rate was a voluntary survey of real estate agents. And so uh, if vacancies were high, there was no motivation to fill out that survey. But if they were low, they would fill it out and the numbers would come through that uh, renters have to get on the knees and beg for somewhere to live. So uh, this whole um, uh, philosophy around housing supply being the, the, the trickle-down economic saviour of, of these pricing pressures we all face each week um, has so many holes in it and I've tried so many ways to get people to understand it. So, yeah, it's good to be with you here um, on the Sense Making uh, podcast trying to make sense of how our economic system that is so revered has got so uh, badly misdirected uh, when it comes to not just housing but all of our land and natural resources. Mm. So just on that, um, just to pick up on the last point that you made um, before around the scarcity uh, farce that exists. Now, could you just explain then a little bit about how, where the regulations come into this or not and how much sway, you know, government policy has over where housing goes, how it's developed? Like where is this, where's the edge between the government's policies of offering housing for people and the developers? Like what's going on there? Yeah, well, there's obviously a tight um, correlation between donations to political parties and rezonings, and Cameron Murray's done a lot of great work on that, showing that those uh, who don't just uh, make donations but who employ um, uh related parties to politicians and their extended families have a tighter, uh, I think it's a 37% greater chance of getting their land rezoned, which, uh, you know, with every golden pen tick of rezoning is worth millions and millions of dollars. So uh, the, the shocking thing is that the Australian um, Stock Exchange is worth about uh, $2 trillion dollars but the Australian land market is worth $8 trillion, that the ACCC doesn't investigate this at all. So uh, they do not look at the behaviour of um, developers and it's sort of all care, no responsibility. They give the rezoning tick and then they don't look at how the developers roll out that supply um, in terms of the pricing effect. So they believe they're good Samaritans and nobody is concerned about what's going on. So, um, 
Yeah, that was kind of my final report for Prosper was uh, in my dream report. And I'm still sneaking in emails, uh, trying to find ways into the ACCC. Um, yeah, I've got to get in touch with Andrew Lee, um, the uh, assistant treasurer, I think, or the, the, the minister for um, competition and charities he is so he's a switched on economist uh in the government so hopefully he can help uh, to bring a, a lens on this behavior because uh if it was any other industry um you'd think uh developers would be um under a lot more uh oversight and uh yeah i'm sort of at the stage where i'm trying to get code written to um give to the the Australian, the global housing um, affordability movement to start monitoring the master plan communities that are happening in their community because that's what we need. We need to take control of this and start uh, making sure that uh, these politicians who often own lots of property investments um, are uh, are aware that we're watching them and we know that these decisions, uh, you know, particularly these $500 million train stations that are being built, uh, they stop the supply until that train station is, um, is opened up. And then, of course, the value goes through the roof. But who funds that train station? You know, people who live hundreds of kilometres away from it, um, not the developers who see you know, often uh, a 50, 70% increase in the value of the land surrounding that train station. Wow. Yeah, that's it's really quite evident that the system is broken and the system needs changing, which is what you are advocating through Grounded. So if this is, if this is how it currently is and it's completely unjust and twisted, what are you proposing are our ways forward and what examples have you seen perhaps around the world that can point to other models of housing people fairly justly and ecologically that can see our way forward? Mm. Well, uh you know, talking on the macroeconomy front, I've spent 18 years trying to make tax reform sexy. And um, in terms of a theory of change, it's probably not the best one. <laughs> so I, I tried all sorts of different ways to get people on board. But, um, yeah, with Grounded, I'm trying to establish um, a, a number of, of what's known as community land trusts as uh, demonstration models of what would happen if the the land bubble, the property bubble, was shared amongst our community and acted to make our community stronger rather than enforcing change with rent racking increase after rent increase. So uh, the community land trust model has, um, you know, 50 years of uh, history in America now and uh, post the global financial crisis in the UK, they've uh, boomed from a dozen to, you know, upwards of 500 CLTs on the go. And uh, that sort of um, escalation has only been possible because both sides of politics have come together to recognise that uh, we need a community-led housing model. We need one that's for purpose rather than for profit. 
and it's sort of a tic-tac towards a common sense economy where uh, this speculative drive to make money off the earth, uh, whether it's iron ore or uh, the electromagnetic spectrum, it's the same principles that we see in real estate and um, that's where a saner future awaits is um, is deterring that sort of speculative behaviour and encouraging um, productive activity. And unfortunately, that treadmill uh, just keeps accelerating at the moment because uh, the land price dictates that rents must go up. And from that, uh, more and more of us are having, you know, domestics around the dinner table rather than these loving conversations uh, because people won't engage with this boring, boring topic called tax. Mm. You know, having lived for 25 years in a place that is on basically a commons, you know, where I live is um, Crystal Waters and we've, it's not a community land trust, but we own the land together as a whole. And 86% of that land we look after as as a group of people. So there's 250 people who live here. I've got little one acre amongst this 600 odd acres. That is what I kind of steward and the rest is common lands, no fences, there's something quite extraordinary about living here. I grew up in the suburbs, but the suburbs that I grew up in were kind of the sort of suburbs where there weren't the fences, where people were ranging around, and I know that that's changed. So I kind of live in a little bit of an isolated bubble, I think, because every time I talk about trying to help communities to get something similar up and running, there's so many barriers that get in the way of this kind of model going ahead. And similarly, you know, travelling around the world, visiting many of the um, extraordinary communities, um, you know, like Horshaw in, in Denmark, where there's houses that are, you know, pushed into sort of a more little clusters and making space for a farm in the middle. So when you actually have the possibility for designing it, you design it completely differently than just, carving up the land into little parcels and leaving no space for community or food or or any other activity that you might collectively imagine is possible. So can you tell us a little bit then how community land trusts might help to shift this from us being so stuck here in Australia for the possibilities for more of this to happen when we know it's so nourishing for people on the planet? Mm. Yes, well, that's what Grounded has really been set up to do because many of you will know, you know, the amazing efforts that Louise Crabtree Hayes has done out of the University of Western Sydney. She's produced a couple of community land trust manuals that help people understand how to make your way forward. Uh, you know, there's a lot of evidence from around the world, but yeah, uh, we've had problems with. Um, the Planning Act, we've had problems with finance in particular. Um, local governments don't know what it is. what it is. State governments don't know either. The feds, you know, they've heard a bit about it, all three levels of government, but um, there hasn't been that extra support mechanism to help get some of these projects over the line so that um, 
we can start to see the evidence of what happens when uh, location, location and that rising value is kept within the community rather than funding someone's ski holiday in Aspen. So um, that's uh, what we're set up to do and um, I'm looking forward to firing off my uh, federal budget submission uh, today, um, highlighting some of these things that could be done and uh, an easy one, uh, many of you will know about environmental land trusts set up to preserve forests and wildlife corridors. Well, uh, those exact um, tax incentives could quite easily be um, uh, copied into uh, any into the community land trust space so that uh, any ethical landholder who wants to donate land to a local community trying to set up uh, an affordable um, farming pod uh, because you know access to farmland is just so expensive for young farmers now and uh, yeah we've got to do something to get the next generation of farmers in so it can happen in a farm scenario it can happen within a town but uh, we need to, to start um, sending those tax incentives towards those that are doing um, good for society so um, yeah back to my old tax uh, tax story again but you know uh, it's so important to um, to really uh, apply self-regulation and accept feedback, and we know that that can um, the the carrot that drives um, that self-regulation is the tax system in a market-based uh, world. So, um, if we can, can you explain that a bit more for non-economy economist type people, like what what tax changes need to happen, and 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 how does that how could that happen? Okay, I'll, I'll just want to, yeah, I'll bridge to that by discussing, um, you know, many people in the environmental economics movement talk about the need for a gross national happiness indicator, um, a fairer measure of GDP, all of these things, but that all happens after the decisions have been made. So you're sort of playing catch up. Whereas if you reform the tax system, that's the carrot that encourages behaviour in certain areas. And uh, up until about 200 years ago, um, landlords used to pay for the governing of the land. They would fund the roads, they would fund the armies, and that's how they would protect the land. Um, but, uh, yeah, since uh, the enclosures of the commons some 500 years, um, th that's been dwindling and uh, now we're in a situation where... Uh, uh, corporates can avoid taxes with their armies of accountants and uh, wage earners are left uh, in their fluoro jackets with a target on the back of them saying, uh, pay the taxes, pay the taxes. And, uh, you know, lo and behold, Rupert Murdoch comes along and distracts them with any sort of easy to grasp concept. And uh, we don't have that depth of analysis that helps people recognise that, We've got 176 uh, tax points and 125 taxes, but only 10 of them raise 90% of the, the total taxes. So um, when you get your, your head around this story, and, and you know, I'm speaking from a, a perspective of what's known as Georgism, 
where Henry George was uh, a famous economist who came to Australia in 1890 and um, helped the union movement understand um, economics, helped uh, uh, governments recognise that aristocratic families from England shouldn't be buying up uh, land um, in the hope of acing um, where the nation's capital was going to be built between Canberra and Melbourne. And so uh, very cleverly, um, uh, the ACT was designed under a leasehold system um, where you are, it's more, it's more close to this concept of being custodians of the earth rather than consumers. And so when you're paying a leasehold uh, to government, you actually have to earn some money from that and um, that ensures that vacant land um, uh, vacant housing is is put to better use rather than um, squatted, if you like, and speculated upon for easy profit. So the big tax switch, we're seeing a little bit of it in New South Wales, but after sitting through maybe half a dozen um, meetings with, um, you know, the head of uh, the Treasury Department in charge of that, of course, the political process bastardised the switch away from stamp duty and towards uh, my beloved land tax. So, um, yeah, you get passionate about land taxes. I never, ever thought I would be that sort of person. But when you consider that tax is, in a way, the white man's word for sharing, um, and if we share the bounty of the land um, and it's done on an annual basis with accurate valuations, uh, we... I'm one of the few economists in the world to actually work out what we could do to replace all taxes on um, productive enterprise and replace them on monopoly. Mm. And the textbooks tell us we've got, uh, you know, it's only 3% of what's known as uh, economic rent, this earth bounty. Um, but uh, when you count it up, uh, about a quarter of the Australian economy, up to a third, is uh, this natural bounty that we create as a community. And when you look at all the, the tax theory, um, this whole concept wins um, in terms of efficiency and fairness. So every now and again, you'll bump into someone like Martin Wolf in the Financial Times this week reminding economists and the everyday person that this is the fairest and the best system that we need to um, stop the sprawl and uh, you know move towards this true cost economics framework that we need. So yeah, I'm bringing that sort of uh, background into the community land trust world, and having seen um, some of my forebears in America having set up intentional communities um, in the early 1900s, and uh, seen places like uh, uh, Arden, Delaware. There's a, a land trust there where um, you know very quickly in about 10 years they paid off all their debts, had beautiful houses. And, and um, became uh, a nudist art colony. And, you know, great for them, but that's an enclave. Um, what's it doing to um, spread its wings and, and share this message so that other um, 
other communities can enjoy um, this sort of these sort of benefits um, that you know you guys at Crystal Waters, um, you know Tuntable Falls, Nimbin, uh, Muramura here in uh, Victoria. Uh, these are all communities that have been you know somewhere around thirty to fifty years uh, in the making. And um, how do we get? Uh, 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 an expansion from this base. So I'm sort of looking at not only improving the community land trust economic model, but also improving the governance side of it. And, uh, you know, being uh, grounded, uh, we like to think that, um, yeah, there's a need for focus on the um, the social um, synergies of communities and how can we improve those too. So, uh there's a lot of history we can learn from. What do you think are the ways to, well, there's lots of questions I was just going to ask you, but one of the ones I was wanting to ask is, say in an urban area, for example, and you're trying to create a community land trust in an urban area, land prices are so ridiculously high and there's a possibility of another type of, type of development happening. What is the possibilities? that you see for urban communities to establish community land trusts as opposed to going out to the countryside somewhere and setting something up? What's Where do you see that being able to work? Yeah, that, that is the hard one, isn't it? Uh, land prices are just so high. We need um, multi-storey apartment dwellings, if you like, to um, try and make some sort of economic sense of of the price paid and my first piece of advice is to understand the property cycle and make sure you're patient and ready to buy when uh, those downturns occur about every seven years or so. Um, so that's uh, the first point of call. But um, yeah, when it comes to uh, other other tactics, it's of course um, looking for ethical property owners. There are a lot of people out there who recognise how bad the system is, who want to um, incorporate permaculture principles into um, into their life. And uh, yeah, I'd love to um, to see this community land trust model um, uh, intertwined with um, the permaculture movement because uh, it, it just makes so much sense that, um, you know, we not only um, catch and, and store energy but this yield that we all bring, you know, and just imagine wherever listeners are today that if everyone left their town and no one lived there, what would that land be worth? You know, it'd be worth next to nothing. But soon as we all come back, the competition for location, location sends prices skyward and it helps you recognise that that is actually community created and it was the basis for the public finance sector. Um, and, yeah, community land trusts are just a small version of that. But... Um, yeah, that is a big one. I'm I'm working my model into shape, Morag. Um, but yeah, the urban land trust model is something that uh, we need. You know, churches are often another one that need that that have surplus land, and so getting local councils to do an audit of their land holdings often um, they don't actually know how much land they've got. They don't know what's 
in use and what's not, um, get them to expand that search into other um, government uh, ownership vehicles and understand what's happening within those land holdings as well um, because often there are hidden sites there and um, I'm hoping that in some of the research ground it's going to be releasing will show how uh, these sites that are often overrun with uh, weeds, blackberries and whatnot can quickly become um, something that is a valued community resource. So just on that then, can you explain to listeners who might not be familiar with the Community Land Trust model how it actually helps to keep rents lower like how does it serve the the community that's part of it and maybe to part of that conversation there how does it evolve over time so you've got you know your pioneers who really get it and are pushing it and uh but what happens what have you noticed that happens after you know when the next gen comes through and does that how do you maintain that push Mm. Yeah, well, that's the big the big thing with land trust is that it at least recognises that over time, the land um, and living on that community becomes more valuable. So, a well uh, governed community land trust will put a formula in place to ensure that um, uh, land and and houses um, can be bought at a ratio either of thirty uh, percent of the bottom 40% um, income earnings, the so-called 30-40 rule. So that means that uh, rent um, payments would be, and rent and housing payments would be capped at uh, 30% of the median income for the bottom 40% of income earners. Um, so that's one formula. Another one is to limit it at, say, 60 or 70% of the median value of housing in the area. So that's another way that it keeps a cap on it. Um, I kind of prefer the first one because, uh, you know, 70% of a million dollars is still a heck ton of money. So um, how and um, yeah, the the model that um, grounded is working on is hopefully going to make um, things uh, even better than that. So um, so yeah, the basic uh, concept is that the land is owned in perpetuity by the um, community land trust, and in its purest form, someone buying into it would only own the house. So uh, that immediate, when you consider that a mortgage, uh, some 70% is the land component, only 30% is the house, um, that means your deposit requirements uh, plummet by 70%. So um, in its purest form, that can occur and is a massive um, a spur of hope for those locked out of housing who just wonder if it, this is ever possible. Um, am I going to be in a precarious situation for the rest of my life and all the mental health and, you know, wider health aspects that that leads to um, with national health budgets uh, going through the roof in terms of cost? Um, it's something that uh, in the UK now they're finding that um, when you look at uh, the sort of um, health and well-being aspects and the income distribution angles over 30 years, the return on investment is uh, 3.1 to $1 invested. And that is absolutely massive compared to um, 
the Albanese government's uh, policy of help to buy, which is spending, you know, $80 million a year um, to basically make prices more expensive and to only last for one one um, generation of ownership. So, you know, so- when they sell, that subsidy is lost and uh, with a CLT, um, instead that's any subsidy is retained within the community and reinvested to um, expand base for affordable housing. So with what you've just said then, why has, apart from, you know, the donations from developers, why has the government not jumped on this as being a solution to so many of society's problems? We, you know, I, I still just can't quite grasp why people would not be doing this more it just makes so much sense yeah it does well uh we are a property owning democracy and when you look into the depths of our westminster system it's only 70 years here in victoria that you had to own property to be a member of the upper house so that hangover is still you know rippling through society and, um, you know, the, those powerful families, those powerful companies, um, they know how the system works and they must have some incredible um, planning strategy weekends where they figure out that, oh, gee, we better lock up the data before everyone catches on to what we're up to. Um, so, yeah, that that's one thing. You know, the banking um, industry obviously also recognises it would um, – would cut into their profits. Um, Yeah, so somewhere in that sort of space. Uh, Also, you know, I feel like um, the the CLT model can do with some improvements as well. So, you know, I'm looking forward to seeing um, a constant evolution in the way we treat land and housing and, and design and, uh, you know, what will be the improvements in another 20 or 30 years? Uh, for mm. too long we've been stuck in a rut and uh, we're grounded on a mission to try and find those who are thinking about this problem and, and pushing the edge in their particular expertise to, to come together and try and rebuild the housing model so that it's not only fairer but way more self-sufficient than it is now. I mean, there's a lot of young families that I come across um, through the work that I do and, you know, single older women as well who are just desperately looking for places now, not in like 20 to 30 years' time. I mean, is this model ready enough for people to grab hold of it and to try and start something somewhere, you know, now? Is that... Well, go to the Grounded website and you'll find on there Louise, Louise's incredible community land trust manuals and look at the first one and my tip is to skip straight to the appendix. Unfortunately, it only covers New South Wales, Victoria and Tasmania, but for anyone in those states, um, there's a good handle on how to move forward. Um, more banks are coming on board and I'm hoping we're going to have some hot contacts there on the right person to speak to in the next few months. Uh, so, yeah, it's about really finding that ethical landholder in your community and trying to work with them to um, uh, bring this model up to up to spec. 
Um, you know, I'd like to think that this time in a year we'll be really humming, but um, yeah, we're just uh, barely six months into um, getting getting our heads around all the various planning laws in each state and what potentials are possible. Um, Queensland, um, for a long time, hasn't really been that open to multiple occupancy and that that sort of uh, uh, community living. Um, but it seems like there's movements coming through. So we're busy um, trying to push that barrel along. Mm. And do you have a series, like a, a set of examples that you point to in other parts of the world that people can look into and go, oh, you know, okay, well, that's what's happening in the States. I understand it more. I get my, I can get my head around and see the shape of what that looks like and, um, you know, maybe in, in the UK or Europe, what have you seen? that are the highlight projects that you would hold up as demonstrations of this in practice? Yes, well, uh, I'd strongly encourage everyone to subscribe to the e-news of the um, communitylandtrust.org.uk, I think it is, the, the big CLT network there. They're doing incredible work and the Cornwell CLT um, down there is booming um love to get to know people down in cornwall because uh, whatever they're doing um they're really pushing things along so they're probably the must watch people in america uh it's always been the champlain community land trust which was set up in 1980 with two hundred thousand dollars of seed funding from the mayor of vermont who uh, was bernie sanders at the time oh huh so, uh, yeah, there are deep roots um, in the American um, economic history surrounding community land trusts and uh, Grounded Solutions is uh, one of the, the the leading groups there that um, is, is doing good work. And, yeah, you'll find some links on our resources page, uh, pages to those groups. Um, but, yeah, there, there's so much potential when we all come together um, you know, if we get these the economic uh, foundations right, if we get the entry and exit plans right, you know, that exit plan, people being able to sell when they want to and having signed a legal document and having got their lawyer to also sign it, that they understand joining a CLT is not something that uh, is going to deliver you bucket loads of money but it's going to give you a stable roof over your head and you're going to have an active community who want to participate and, and live together um, to make life easier, then uh, that's what, you know, a CLT can offer. Mm. It's a really different model, isn't it, because of the, such the push on the investment housing, you know, that's that's where people put their money to get the money. So that whole mind frame has to shift. I want to ask you about the entry point, though. Um, do you find that banks are open to people getting money to build a house on a CLT? Like can they get a loan in that way? How's that working? Well, we still don't. There's, there's uh, you know, the the Australia's first CLT is um, on uh you know, life support up in Stradbroke Island um, that Gary Flamenhoff and Andrew have uh, up there. Um, if you check out CLT Associates, um, you'll find a link to there. But, uh, yeah, 
they had to take a loan, a personal loan out to build the home. They couldn't actually get a mortgage. Um, but apparently uh, a guy named Jason Twill and uh, Louise Crabtree Hayes um, found more support than they expected through the banking community. So, um, yeah, if anyone's got a, a board member at the Bank of Adelaide, uh, I'd love to hear from you. Um, they seem to be one of the more progressive banks in the country and most likely to support uh, a CLT. So, yeah, I'm confident. What about Bank though. Australia? Have you explored anything with them at all? Uh, not enough. No. no, need to get it. You know, same thing there. They're they're one of those top banks too. Um, I think they're related, aren't they? Bank of Adelaide, Bank Australia. I don't yeah. know, but it sounds they seem to me to be one of those ones that would be more likely to do to do that. I mean, I think that's one of the reasons why Crystal Waters has the model that it has that we share most of the land, but the bit that we have our house on, we have our freehold title to, to be able to get that mortgage. That was kind of the the reason why to facilitate that entry and that exit, that, that structure was implemented to facilitate that because before then people couldn't get mortgages. They had to build shacks, illegal shacks over the property 30-odd years ago and then you know, there wasn't enough agreement on how things were working. It was pretty pretty wild and woolly back then. But um that entry and exit point I think is is um is really, really important. Uh and it would be seems to me like to be one of those key things that helps people feel a bit more comfortable if they understand mm. how that's possible, how that can work and how they what about if you have no money? If you have no backing like how do you enter into a clt in that way yeah well what we're seeing in the uk in particular is a recognition of this and uh and as, as share you know it's often 50 50 between ownership and rental and they've found there's actually such a dearth of affordable rentals that they're orientating more in that direction now they've got good links into um ethical uh finance um, but yeah, often you know, I've during my time at Prosper, you know, I was every time I'd speak about CLTs, I'd be surrounded by people wanting to know more, and I could never dedicate enough time to it. Uh, but along that journey, I met a number of people who were um, sort of anti-property um, speculation and thought the key to it all was to set up a total rental community. Um, sounds great, but it means you need, you know, billions more basically to make it happen. And the risk profile that is attached to that is massive and it's very, very hard to get finance under that sort of model. So, um, hopefully we will have, um, a number of different mixes available for, um, communities looking to establish a land trust. And from that, we'll be able to, um, streamline the number of meetings that are needed you know I'm, I'm horrified to hear how many groups have met for you know eight to ten to even 14 years they've met to try and establish our intentional community with no money um, no land and still they've forged ahead how can we provide the resources so that uh, you know within a couple of years you can you can start turning that sod and getting uh, this much needed alternative to uh, housing uh, on the ground and and in action? Yeah, I think it's going to unlock a huge potential of 
you know, people being able to live a much more regenerative life and and also, you know, find that well-being. One of, one of the things you're focusing on in a session that's coming up soon in Grounded is around governance. Do you want to tell us a bit about that focus that you've got? Yeah, well, uh, I'm keen to learn from, uh, you know, the wisdom of the Australian Intentional uh community movement so we've got a make your own rules event explorations in good governance on march the first and we have uh, crystal waters and uh, robin clayfield um, presenting alongside uh, megan james from tuntable falls and peter cock from muramura so uh yeah we're going to really delve into um how to do the whole startup process in uh, uh, setting up your community and how to best organise it so this governance is established for the entry, exit, and importantly for um, the core objects of your constitution and making sure that you've got a long-term plan in place because, you know, within 10 years you're going to pay down your debts and then how are you going to keep your community together and driving towards a deeper objective that helps society. So, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, hearing you know, a, a synopsis of all of those uh, trials and tribulations of uh, setting up and running a community over, you know, 50 years, Tuntable Falls, you know, Crystal Waters. It's amazing how long um, people have sat around a table and preserved this sanctity of, of having a community-led housing um, opportunity for, for people to experience. Yeah, there's so much wealth of knowledge in, in so many groups and it just, you know, I really take my hat off to you with this trying to find the possibilities for this to myceliate, you know, like there's so much possibility, so much possibility. Oh, and, and the philanthropists are loving it. So they're keen, you know, they're keen to be involved and they just want to find a scalable model that's going to work and that's what I'm working um, hammer and tong on is to really um, pull the best of the current housing model with the CLT model so that we can, um, you know, basically get that initial capital investment repaid off reasonably quickly and uh, gain sovereignty over this land as, as you know, as quickly as we can in a, in a world of unceded land. Yeah, and, you know, I really like the way that you described it, grounded your values, you articulated them really beautifully on, on your site. I was doing a bit of reading before about, you know, like the, the first value was that of recognising that we are on unceded country. Maybe you could just, you know, just to wrap up a little bit around your relationship with the, um, in, in that context. Yes, well, uh, it's a, it's a, you know, such a massive issue, land and the way we treat it. Um, but yeah, the the theft of land, we have to deal with that, and we're really hoping we can help. Um, there's a, a couple of indigenous-led housing NGOs coming along, so we're hoping we can um, work with them. Uh, yeah, but you know, we're grounded in recognition. Um, of First Nations people um, 
and uh, how well they manage this land for so long. And I'm just going to give a plug. My God, this book, this knowledge, this first knowledges um, series uh, uh, coming out of Melbourne University. Um, yeah, there's an incredible book called Design. There's another one called Country on Cultural Burns. It's just amazing the knowledge that's out there. And we do live amongst, you know, the oldest and wisest um, uh, people on the planet. Uh, but we're grounded in place um, so that, you know, we recognise land must be managed and cared um, according to its um, specific place-based needs. Um, in our ecology, of course, uh, in justice, everyone deserves a home and the ability to nurture and protect uh, that land as well. Uh, we're grounded in equity. Um, the land values must be um, based on the reality of our incomes and not some sort of speculative uh, pricing uh, trajectory that we're on. And we're grounded in responsibility in that uh, we need to build a, a greener, fairer world for the future. And then last but not least, we have to be grounded in community and uh, helping people come together and grow together. And, uh, you know, us fellas, we need to uh, grow perhaps a little bit more. But um, how can we make uh, emotional intelligence and, um, you know, the, those sort of uh, principles of, of sharing our, um, our uh, deepest uh, issues um, with our inner circle so that we can um, actually be more rounded and grounded. Mm. You know, I really want to encourage everyone who's listening to explore this more, whether you are a landowner and have the possibility of opening up an exploration of this with community or whether you are a group of friends and are looking for ways forward to to um, dive on into the CLT world. I Is this event that you're organising and subsequent events that I imagine you're organising face-to-face or are they something that people can catch up with if they're in other parts of the country? How is that all going to work and how can people follow your work at Grounded? Yeah, it's... it's uh... Good old Zoom, so um, anyone can tune in. Um, yeah, check out our uh, our socials. Um, yeah, goodness me, do I know them well enough? Don't worry, I'll put the links down below so in the show notes so everyone can kind of find them. So follow you on socials, that's where they'll get the links to events um, and any other resources. So, yeah, that's great. Yeah, thank all you. On the website grounded.org.au. You can find all the links from there, and Perfect. the event promo will be up uh, very soon. Great. Well, by the time people are listening to this, the event promo will be out. The event promo will be in the show notes. So have a look there, and I hope you can join in and, and follow along and participate more so um, in the Community Land Trust movement in Australia and really weave permaculture beautifully in that. It's something. I've been talking about for a very long time since I first started creating City Farms Community Gardens projects, really finding it challenging, like where is it, where the urban farms exist, where, you know, suburban development is sprawling out across all the best agricultural land. How can we take those models of, like you were saying before, the, you know, the, the bushland 
trusts and take that concept and as a community pay for protecting the best agricultural land in and around our cities and setting up you know community farming trusts where we can be doing sustainable regenerative farming that feeds the city you know something I've been talking about for a long time and um, you know exploring different ways of weaving those together with our housing models like the ones I mentioned in Denmark they are beautiful places to live with thriving communities, safe places to raise your children and a great sense of well-being and, you know, you know that, you know, your food's coming from the land that's around you and the wastewater's going back in and soaking. into Like the permaculture principles of design really embrace this kind of way forward and I would love to see the possibilities of these restrictive legal and policy challenges being somehow unstuck to enable the imagination and the possibilities and the and the dedication that people have like you're saying for 14 years you know trying to make something happen to actually be able to do this it is what the kind of you know climate sane future looks like yeah goodness me all those people up up in north uh, Lismore regions and whatnot um, dealing with, uh, you know, this climate ravaged future. How can we um, have uh, a housing-based system that encourages some sort of flexibility rather than locking us into a place that uh, has a, a jumbo-sized mortgage and uh, you just can't, you know, you've lost your life savings. So that's... Um, a lot easier under a CLT model where you're only borrowing for the house, um, so it's a much smaller mortgage, much easier to pay it down rather than um, this scenario we've got uh, where it, yeah, it must just be, um, you know, we need, we need a light at the end of the tunnel and hopefully CLTs can help uh, play a small part in providing that. Mm. Well, thank you so much for joining me on the show today, Carl. It's been a real pleasure to to hear where you're heading with this. I know we've been talking about trying to have a conversation for a long time about this because it is, you know, absolutely critical that we shift what's going on in this world of of housing and the what's driving it. You know, this you talk about, you know, shaking it up and disrupting this broken system. Well, yeah, well, <laughs> that's what we need to do, and uh, I'm all in that with you. <laughs> Yeah, thanks, Morag. Fantastic discussion. And uh, yeah, love to check in sometime in the future with uh, some um, stories of uh, some of the sort of projects we're working on in the background at the moment trying to get up. So people are, are moving um, in this space and hopefully we can get government finance um, and uh, philanthropy uh, moving in the same direction. Yeah, great. Well, thank you again. And and um, I'll see you on 1st of March. Excellent. Good All one. Right. Take care. Thanks a lot. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in to this Sense-Making in a Changing World episode. I'm so delighted to be able to share my conversation with Carl Fitzgerald from Grounded with you about this essential topic of housing. Check out the links below because I've included all of the different references that Carl mentioned, as well as links to Grounded and our work here at the Permaculture Education Institute. And remember to subscribe and leave us a lovely review. I'll see you next time.